Because I think there's like this, this natural curiosity for people. It's like, well, how many partners do you have? Well, kind of what you're asking is how many people are you having sex with in mm. some ways, right? Mm. Which is a really strange question that you can say it that way, but you can't say it. Like it's kind of an undertone, right? <laughs> and some of my most fulfilling and emotionally deep relationships are with people I don't have sex with, right? You're listening to This Polyamorous Life, collecting stories of the struggles and triumphs of non-monogamous people wherever I find them. I'm Wrench. This week, you'll be hearing a conversation I had with Michelle. Michelle is a sociology professor living in Metro Detroit. Non-monogamy has been part of her identity for two years now. She strives to practice relationship anarchy and what she calls liberatory relating. She was happy to explain what all that means. strive to practice the ideals of relationship anarchy and I am by no means perfect at it but it's a process okay okay what does relationship anarchy mean to you so to me relationship anarchy is acknowledging that our culture has an ideal for what relationships are supposed to look like and usually those are escalator style heteronormative monogamy rule-based relationships, right? And okay. the idea is that they are um, better and more serious if they follow a certain pattern and they last a certain length and all of that. And so it's a rejection of all of that. So it's a rejection of hierarchical situations where you put rules on other people's behaviors and interactions with other people. Um, you know, you can set healthy boundaries for yourself, obviously, but like saying to somebody, I don't really want you to see that person would not be ideal, right? That would be, um, entitled and things like that. Um, so it's very based on autonomy as really important for both yourself, but also respecting other people's autonomy in the process. It's an acknowledgement that the way we choose our relationships is inherently political, um, and is connected to the larger society, even though you're looking at it in the micro, um, how you decide to interact with people ultimately affects the world around you. So, yeah. Now this all seemed like a really big step, so I needed to know. I asked Michelle what letter to pursue relationship anarchy. Okay. Yeah, that's a complicated question. Um, trying to figure out where to start the story. Uh, early on, um, <laughs> it's funny. I was raised Catholic and I was okay. always intrigued by the stories of the prophets with multiple partners, <laughs> frankly. And like, it was kind of, it felt like I should have distaste for it. Yeah. Um, just because that's the norms of my own culture. Um, and so I always kind of questioned that. And that was always something I always played with in my head. Um, I briefly became a Mormon. Um, so I was part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for a while. And for them, um, that's part of their history. But then it kind of like, well, uh, we need to put this aside for a while because we're not like people are not looking at us seriously anymore. Right. Because of the norms of the culture. But I was always intrigued by it and excited about it. And I wanted to talk to people about it. And they were like, shh. <laughs> so that's one thing that I experienced. Um, and then, you know, after I kind of transitioned out of religiosity, I ended up um, marrying a Muslim guy. 
and we were married for um, 10 years. And I always teased him about finding another wife because you can have up to four wives, right? And he, I mean, always scoffed at me and probably thought I was bizarre. Um, Because actually in most other scenarios, like his friends would actually sort of torture their wives by threatening to take more wives. And I'd be like, let's do it, right? So um, it's always been, and I've never really been a jealous person at all either. Um, And I think I've also always had a tendency to like easily love people. Um, If I can find value in anybody and I can just kind of, I don't know, I just feel like I can connect with people pretty easily. And so once I got into the more traditional style monogamy relationships, it felt really oppressive to me. Um, because there was this expectation that I wasn't going to um, have the same connections that I formerly had as a single person. And then I would have to peel some of those back. Um, and then I would have to get all of my needs met with this one person who were all incredibly flawed, right? And so like this principle that you have to um, be everything for your monogamous partner, but also um, find everything you need from them um, just always felt obviously lacking and a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so eventually <laughs> I also teach uh, sociology courses at a local community college. And um, one of the courses I teach is sociology of sex roles, which is essentially gender and sexuality. And we cover all kinds of stuff. And um, one of my students actually came out to me as polyamorous ones and she was just torn up about it, said, everybody's shaming me. And she knew I was pretty open minded. And I'm like, hey, you know, you do what you got to do. You're open about it. You're communicating with your partners about it. Like, why should you feel shame just because other people don't get it? And eventually she started sending me polyamory literature that I, so that I could share with my students who might come out to me in the future to kind of comfort them. And as I was reading those things, I was like, oh, this is definitely intriguing and exciting. And um, I was in a monogamous relationship at the time um, and also felt very like, oh, this is too much. And uh, yeah, because of the possessiveness and all that kind of stuff that I'm very uncomfortable with. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, so I was reading those things, kind of getting excited about them. And anytime I would be browsing online, I came across the word polyamory. I was immediately drawn to it. I'm going to read this. This is exciting. Um, and then eventually I just kind of decided I really need to figure this out. And so I start, I found, um, Metro Detroit Polyamory, which is a meetup group, um, in Detroit, started attending those meetups, uh, mostly the discussion based ones. And it just so happened that the discussion-based ones were run by relationship anarchists. And they are brilliant people and very thoughtful and won me over. Uh, so, yeah, one particular, the, the particular moment that I kind of realized this is really what my style needs to be is they had a, they had three different people come and share about their experiences, specifically about housing. And um, as they were describing their situations, I just thought, this is beautiful. Somebody was describing a situation of compersion. Um, and then also kind of the relief of knowing that one of their partners had another partner to kind of like, Hey, I've got a busy life. I can't give everything to this one person. And the relief of kind of being more of a community rather than, you know, tightly interwoven couple. So, so that kind of set me off on that path. And then I got more active in that community and yeah, so that's like trying to say it as quickly as I possibly can, even though it's a long story. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So there's so there's a lot of sort of things to to look at there. 
So, so religion was a really important part of your life. It was for uh, a long time. For a long time, and and it, it sounds like your like your non-monogamy point of view was both like informed your religi- religious or the way you looked at religion, as well as was informed by it to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah, can you talk about that, or or, oh. or 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 alternatively, like what led you away from religion and things like that? Sure. Oh wow, that's a really long story too. <laughs> um, I because I was raised in such a religious, like hardcore framework, I just mm. felt like this is like this is how you live your life. You are informed by your religion. It's really important. This is the truth. This is morality. You're good, right? All this is really important. So I was really occupied with uh, my early life, probably up until about 23, 24, 25, um, with finding the truth with a capital T, right? And the best religion. And so actually for quite some time academically, like I actually studied comparative religion for a while too and used to teach world religion classes, um, but also kind of had my own personal uh, journey through that path as you can probably tell, right, um, in terms of my story. Uh, but, yeah, so that was always interesting to me. And then eventually, like, after you learn about so many different religions, I mean, from my own perspective and experience, mm-hmm. it was really hard to be like, okay, this is totally reasonable to pick one, <laughs> right, and follow it as if this is the ultimate truth. It just seemed kind of absurd. And then I also just kind of started kind of recognizing the social construction of a lot of things in society as a sociologist and trying to be more thoughtful and reflective about, you know, well, what makes me happy? What's a more healthy dynamic in my own life? What's balanced in my own life? Because that's something that I strive for. So not just balance in my own life, but balance for community. Um, So I think a lot about things like that. And religion just really uh, lost its appeal as I started thinking about other more practical considerations for how to live a life that would be happy for me. In sociology, there's a big focus on if you really, well, I mean, striving for objectivity, right? And, you know, don't be ethnocentric, be a cultural relativist. And the more you actually really try to take that standpoint, the more you see, like, you know, having multiple partners is pretty normal in lots of other cultures. Of course, it depends on the structure and the hierarchies. It's not necessarily ideal in all scenarios from my perspective. I asked Michelle to discuss anarchy, the political movement, and how it relates to relationship anarchy. You know, in terms of practical anarchy, you know, I see the appeal of it. I don't know whether I could like exactly subscribe to like pure anarchy. I think because as a sociologist, I think on multiple levels and thinking about anarchy in the macro just seems so untenable given what we're working with at this moment. Um, and also in terms of communities, because one of the big um, slogans, I think, at least in my local community about relationship anarchy is, you know, communities, not couples, right? That's a really big slogan. Communities, not couples. And so at what point is a community sustainable in terms of size and, you know, the anarchy of, you know, autonomy? Because with freedom, you know, there are costs, there's all kinds of things. And like, at what point does the bubble burst? And also thinking about how, um, on the macro level, anarchy, you know, how would we transform what we currently have into anarchy and what would that look like and what would the cost be? And so because there's already so much inequality and oppression based on the history of colonialism and neocolonialism, um, thinking about like how, well, how could we all of a sudden get anarchy without re, you know, remedying some of the past wrongs? So that we'd all be on equal footing. Mm-hmm. And I, it's hard for me to imagine without some sort of bigger authoritative structure enforcing that to level the playing field. 
I'm not saying it's impossible, but actually, you know, for me, relationship anarchy is great because it takes all the good stuff of anarchy and makes it like personally livable. Like you can see it working mm-hmm. in in your personal life. If it might, if it doesn't work on a mezzo or a macro level, like oh well, it's working here, and this is great. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and it kind of takes that that old idea of the personal is political and just in some ways flips it around a little and the, you know, the political is personal and, sure. and makes that, it, yeah, it's, it's a, it's interesting that way for okay. sure. And also like, I think people who do tend to get into more couple dynamics or even just nuclear family dynamics or whatever, mm-hmm. um, tend to be a lot more isolated. They're a lot less likely to talk to their neighbors. They're less likely to get involved politically um, and actually care about their community in bigger ways. And so it, it kind of goes back and forth along the spectrum of um, levels, right? Yeah. The mention of nuclear family led me to ask Michelle about her own family situation. You have a kid. Can we I talk do. about that? Yes, we can. Okay. Yep. Um, he's nine. Um, and I parent him mostly Monday through Friday and he stays with his um, dad on the weekends usually. Okay. Um, and we live in the suburbs Yeah. (laughs) and I think a lot of, there's, you know, a lot more normative community. And so sometimes they were, I'm very honest and open with him about everything. So he is completely aware. Actually, we watch lots of shows together and I'm like, you know, most of the premises of children's or teenager version shows or Mm -hmm. preteens are you know, two people fighting over the same person that they want to date, right? I'm like, what would be a better way to solve that problem? And he's like, oh, well, I mean, why did the person have to choose if they like both of them, right? And I'm like, exactly. And so there's so many problems that can be solved by having more of a um, relationship anarchy framework for for that. Because you don't feel like you have to limit yourself or restrict yourself. Um, And so I am very open. He's also like... I mean, I've always been careful to make sure he understands sexuality and gender. So, you know, from growing up, I always mentioned, you know, if you ever decide to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, which actually labels now, I'm starting to learn are a little bit problematic with the relationship anarchy framework. But like, if you decide, so I'm acknowledging like asexuality and, you know, maybe aromanticism, Mm -hmm. but also like being queer is totally Mm -hmm. fine. Um, But also he understands that I, as a relationship anarchist, um, have so many relationships with all the people that I know and yeah. I don't necessarily um, define those explicitly. So I don't use the words boyfriend and girlfriend anymore with him. Right. Um, so I just have friends and people that I love. And um, so also trying to, to teach him how to depedestalize sex as a way to uh, prioritize relationships Mm-hmm. Um, and then not be, not have that be the focus of understanding other people's relationships either. Like, because I think there's like this, this natural curiosity for people. It's like, well, how many partners do you have? Well, what they kind of what you're asking is how many people are you having sex with in mm-hmm. some ways? Right. Mm-hmm. Which is a really strange question that you can say it that way, but you can't say it like it's kind of an under undertone. Right. <laughs> and some of my most fulfilling, I mean, some of my most fulfilling and emotionally deep relationships are with people I don't have sex with. Right. And so like, it's, that's an interesting, also part of the cultural uh, rejection of those norms. But for a lot of people, if they're um, in a relationship with somebody that they deem their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their spouse, 
And one of their friends is like, hey, can you do this thing with me or for me? They're like, sorry, my partner has this thing. Mm -hmm. And that's considered a completely acceptable answer to reject your friend Mm -hmm. because your partner. Like, so it's the priority thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just think that that's not a good, you should be accountable to your own decisions and also think about, it's not, it shouldn't just be an automatic answer. It should be a reflective answer. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know. Yeah. And I went off track about talking about my kid, but I really am very open and honest uh, with him about all of it. Yeah. um, I want to, I want to circle back to one small thing that you said earlier. Um, So you said um, you have friends and you have people that you love. And I'm assuming that those are not two categories, right? No. Because that, okay. I mean, my friends are people that I love. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, like, in terms of how, in terms of labeling or talking about people, I might use those interchangeably. Mm-hmm. For sure. In terms of, yeah, as I discussed with him. I asked Michelle if not having labels makes it difficult to talk to kids about relationships and sex and things. Can you have a sex talk without using the words boyfriend and girlfriend? It can make it more complicated, but I think the nuances are helpful in terms of teaching adequate communication. Because as soon as you use the word boyfriend or girlfriend, there's all these assumptions and entitlements that come with it. Mm-hmm. And if you are not using those words and you actually have to talk through with somebody, this is how I see our inter- our relationship and this is how I want to relate with you, then it's explicit. And there's not these expectations that end up with hurt feelings and... Right. Because yeah. I think in a lot of like traditional relationships, you just read between the lines and have expectations. Yeah. You know, I'm seeing somebody, of course, eventually they're going to ask me to marry them. Right. Yeah. Um, so but if you're not if you're operating outside of those norms, then people already know to really dissect everything, which I think is really healthy and helpful. Michelle also explained that using the terms boyfriend and girlfriend is problematic because it reinforces the gender binary. It linguistically erases people of other genders. I asked Michelle to go a little deeper into the relationship anarchy criticism of marriage. Um, I guess if you think about marriage as a social contract, that basically I think the understanding is you're going to be sexually exclusive with this person. At least that's the societal implication mm-hmm. that governments are basically getting involved in those social contracts and then giving people who are willing to undergo those contracts special rights and privileges mm-hmm. because of that marriage. Um, so... But also kind of the expectation that, you know, property is shared in child, like, custody. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Health, being able to get health insurance. Um, that a lot of your basic necessities are met through this contract makes it kind of compulsory for a lot of people. Um, but then also it's very sometimes difficult to get out of. Um, and so, and historically it wasn't available to queer people in some ways. Um So it kind of reinforced the heteronormative situation, but also sets, in many cases, sets up a situation of dependence Mm -hmm. where, um, and I think even monogamy without marriage can do this too, but where one person feels kind of entitled to the other person, but also sets up maybe a financial dependence Mm -hmm. or an emotional dependence to where they feel like they, they will endure mistreatment because the structure is in place, right? So you know, if you could just say without marriage, well, okay, I'm done with this, bye, without having to have the state intervene and accept it, there'd probably be a lot more people maybe willing to 
um, and really toxic relationships without mm-hmm. that. And so I think it keeps people in abusive situations, but also people who are, I mean, getting into desirability politics a little mm-hmm. bit, some people cannot find marriage partners. Mm-hmm. And so why should they be deprived of like benefits of health insurance? Like why couldn't I say, oh, well, I want to give these two friends on my family plan and my health insurance. Why do they have, why do I have to be married to them? Um, but also I think marriage historically has been part of the patriarchy, right? That like women have been seen as property and, um, it's almost like, you know, like the, the classic marriage is just a socially approved form of prostitution. Why are we, you know, (laughs) I mean, historically it was kind of that way. Right. So, um, I know we're getting, maybe some of us are getting away from that now, but, uh, there's, (laughs) and not that I'm, not not that I'm dissing on prostitution either. I'm just saying (laughs) that like the idea is you must commit yourself to this man for your life and bear his children. And, um, you know, your job is to be sexually available while he provides for your, um, you know, your other existence. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so that's just an unhealthy, I think, oppressive dynamic at the core. And so I think the history of marriage has just been incredibly oppressive and, um, and continues to be in a lot of dynamics. Mm -hmm. So, um, the anti-marriage thing is, yeah, is probably a big part of a lot of people's ideals in relationship anarchy. There's definitely some people who call themselves relationship anarchists who get away from that kind of political dimension. Mm -hmm. I don't know too many of them. Most (laughs) most of the people I know are very political and very anti-monogamy and and anti-marriage. And anti-hierarchical poly, for to yeah. be to be completely honest, for, for but sure, for sure, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in yeah, in the circles that I run in in in, in Windsor, there like there, like I've said to you before, there is there are relationship anarchists in Windsor, but there's just not many of them. Um, and, you know, there's people who they mostly identify as polyamorous, but there's a lot of people who um, look at what the, the ideas of relationship anarchy and, and, you, you know, pick and choose. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I think when it comes to things like hierarchical polyamory, there's the, the current state of, at least certainly my, my relationships and things like that is, is there's like the idea of descriptive hierarchy and, mm-hmm. um, prescriptive hierarchy. Sure. Right. And like right now I, like there's definitely a disc a descriptive hierarchy. Like like mm-hmm. if you describe my relationship, well, I am I'm married to a person. I have a child with that person. Mm-hmm. I live with that person. But I have and but I have this other partner who I am you know involved with in a in a uh, very committed way. But um, that person might be considered a secondary because I'm not married to her. But of course, I can't be married to her because I'm already married to the first one and I hadn't met her yet, you know, and all that sort of thing. Um, so so to, to, to me, it's kind of like, th- there was a, a time at the very beginning where I was, um, where I, I did kind of consider her the secondary partner, like, and, and um, but like it rapidly became clear that that was toxic. Like that, that just wasn't a good way of, of thinking that that was hurtful, frankly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it's weird to me actually that that ever was a way of thinking that stuck around for any amount of time. Sure. You know, because cause it's one of those things where I, it's like, I get that there's the, the need for the, the like, or the feeling that, that, that um, 
quote unquote primary relationships required safety, but mm-hmm. also we need to treat people like or the illusion people. of safety. Yeah. I mean, to be real. Yeah, yeah. The illusion. Yeah, I mean, in in all of this, it's it's somewhat illusory, right? Like right. It's, it's always about the feeling of safety rather than the necessarily actual safety. But that's. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just, just, you know, the, yeah, what is. And I think relationship, I think people who strive for relationship anarchy recognize that some people in your life you're going to spend more time with. And you're, and you will prioritize in different ways over other people. But the language of primary, secondary, but also the rules. I think the big critique is about kind of like what is seen as monogamy plus. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, exactly. monogamy plus. Right. So it's like, I want to have more sexual gratification by having some diversity in the bedroom. But like, that's the goal. That's not yeah. at all in line with the values of yeah. relationship anarchy. Yeah. Just so. la- yeah. Just last night, I was having a conversation with a, a person who was um, like hunted by unicorn hunters and, and was in a three month relationship, you know, living with a couple um and yeah <laughs> she did not have a a good time of it but, you know she she'll she would say that oh there were nice moments you know and i remember <laughs> some of those nice moments fondly but yeah they they did not treat her well and, it, and it's funny because well, i'd never met this person before so it's kind of like why weren't you like come out to our staff sure because <laughs> we could have helped you Right. <laughs> or we could have been at least been like, you know, and, and she said that her friends saw the red flags and were telling her, but, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, and, and it's the sort of thing, well, if you had come out, we would have been like, yeah, the red flags all over this. Cause this is, yeah, this is a, an issue that we haven't dealt with in our community too much just because, um, we, we deal with the people who show up. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and this is so this is a, a thing where, you know, I talk about that. Oh, in polyamory circles, we're getting rid of this hierarchy thing. The people who are showing up to stuff and talking about <laughs> it are getting rid of this thing. And, right. and, you know, who knows what the people who aren't showing up to things are doing. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't well, know. Cause you have to be able to have dialogue with people to deconstruct those norms because most people do come to polyamory or relationship anarchy out of monogamy. Yeah. And so unlearning and deconstructing what are the elements of monogamy and, you know, not everybody's into that, but also you have to be exposed to it to be able to do it mm-hmm. unless you're already invested in it yeah. because people who are unicorn hunting st- still feel like incredibly progressive yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. They're so, like, oh, we're so, yeah, we're so evolved because we are going to have sex with an, with another woman. Right. <laughs> you know. So it's all like a, a matter of perception and spectrum, right? So yeah. like, if you're exposed to this, to more radical queer relationship anarchists, then mm-hmm. your perspective of this is like, what is this, right? Yeah. But if you, do, all your friends are monogamous, yeah. you're looking at, you yeah. know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This is... Definitely one of the reasons why we uh, like having you guys around. <laughs> Thanks. Because <laughs> it's the sort of thing where, where you know, it, it it expands the mind and, and, you know, makes you become, you know, more self-critical in a, in a way that makes you grow, which I think is really important. Um, because, yeah, there's, there's some things about the way that people have been traditionally doing polyamory, which is a 
really weird sentence, traditionally doing polyamory, <laughs> but polyamory's been around long enough that yes. I can say that. Um, you know, that are, that are, um, not good, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah, like there's, what, what was it? Like five years, 10 years ago, they, um, the, the, the more than two website put up the, or my, I'm not sure what the order of things are, but they had the, the secondaries bill of rights. <gasps> and, oh. and when they first put up that up, they had it, got a whole bunch of hate mail. Uh-huh. From people saying that secondaries don't have rights, <gasps> basically, no, right? I didn't right? know that. Yeah, so they got a bunch of hate mail about that, and now the hate mail that they get is, you know, how, how dare you call people secondaries? Right, that's <laughs> right? good. Thank you for coming on this polyamorous life. Yeah, thank uh, you for inviting me. You're you're welcome. Okay, and the last thing is I asked you to come up with uh, a, a song or some other non-monogamy related mm-hmm. media. Um, what did you come up with? Did you come up with something? Yeah, it's tricky because there's not a lot out there necessarily. That's why I'm um, doing it. <laughs> right, yeah. But I ended up um, falling down on the Steven Universe. Okay. Are you familiar with Steven Universe? Steve, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the TV show. Yeah. And so, you know, the concept of fusions which I kind of interpret to be like important relationships. Okay. And you know, there's a specific one. Um, I think it's in the episode called off colors where, um, you, you meet a fusion that is a fusion of six different gems, right? And gems are different characters in the show. Right. And then as they fuse, they become one at which I think is kind of this, I think it's kind of symbolic of non-monogamy in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And fusions can exist in, you know, pairs or three or four. I mean, it can exist uh, theoretically in lots of different Mm -hmm. dynamics. And, um, you know, as you introduce this character with the the dynamic of six different gem fusions, they say, okay, well, how many, you know, how many gems are you? I'm six, but if we met the right gem, (laughs) right. And so, I mean, it's so quick, but it's, yeah. It's really kind of this, one of the things I pl- appreciate about relationship anarchy too is like relationship transitions. There's like mm-hmm. infinite possibilities for relationships and how they might mm-hmm. um, form. And there's not really a limit on the number and there's not really. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Steven Universe does a good job being both queer positive, but also non-monogamy positive mm-hmm. in a way that's approachable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really cool. Yeah, I haven't I haven't watched much of it, but it does it, it does seem really neat. And I'm sorry if there were spo- spoilers in there, but um, but yeah, no, it's really I really appreciate that show. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, thanks once again for for coming on this polyamorous life. That's a weird thing to say because uh, I'm in your house. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, yeah, and. You've been listening to This Polyamorous Life, sponsored by Windsor Polyamory. Please like, rate, and review the show at the usual places. If you are listening and on Twitter, let me know. I'm at Life Polyamorous. To help out the show financially, go to patreon.com slash thispolyamorouslife. Everyone who donates, no matter how small, will get their name in the podcast. This show was put together by me, Reg Robson, with some editing help from Aaron Christmas. A big thanks goes to Michelle this week for coming on the show. 
I'll be back with another conversation for you in seven days. Thank you.